0: Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year, our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. In Australia, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women are the most at-risk group of experiencing domestic and family violence. During the COVID-19 pandemic, domestic and family violence workers warned there would be increased violence as a result. It is now indisputably evident that violence caused by COVID-19 has had a devastating impact, particularly on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and children across New South Wales. Here to tell us more is this week's podcast guest, Ash Johnston. Ash is an Aboriginal Dungudi woman who grew up on Darwell Country and is currently completing a PhD on Indigenous Education and Research. She works as an Aboriginal Specialist worker for the Illawarra Women's Domestic Violence Court Advocacy Service and is on the board of Women's Safety New South Wales. This is a statewide peak body for women's specialist services, advocating for women's safety in the context of domestic and family violence through systemic reform and cultural change. During this week's podcast, Ash brings to light the key issues emerging as a result of the pandemic with a focus on the effects being felt by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. Specifically, Ash delves into how Indigenous women have experienced domestic violence during this time and the unique challenges they have faced. Hello, Ash, and thanks very much for joining us today on the podcast. Thanks for coming.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: It's an absolute pleasure and I'm really interested in talking to you uh, today about DV and the experience of Indigenous women uh, experiencing domestic violence, especially during COVID. But let's start with your background. Uh, what did you, How did you get to where you are today?
1: <laughs> yeah, so um, quite a, uh, a twisting journey, I suppose, is what I would call it. So, I actually studied a Bachelor of Arts at University um, at Wollongong um, and through that I majored in Indigenous Studies and in History. Um, Through doing that I ended up coming to contact with a um, really great research group who were looking into um, Indigenous young people and their experiences of education. Um, They ended up inviting me to work with them and that opportunity led me to doing my PhD in Indigenous education and research. Um, when I've been... I'm still doing that now as a classic PhD student who lets these things draw on for a very long time. Um, through that, I became more and more involved in um, Indigenous affairs more broadly. So I'd always been really politically minded um, with a really big social justice and <laughs> activism... Um, yeah. Passion, um, and then I a job opportunity came up working with the Wollongong Women's Information Service um, and the Illawarra Women's Domestic Violence Court Advocacy Service. So I went for that opportunity, and it was really just so great. It was um, the ability to work as an Aboriginal specialist worker, um, which means I was able to work directly with the community, supporting women as they were going through often the court process and the ABO process, but also just providing ongoing support and information um, and referring them to services that they needed to help keep themselves safe and keep their families safe as well. So um, it wasn't something that I necessarily would have thought that I would end up working in, but just through a few different, you know... um, you know a few different paths yeah opportunities exactly so through that I was able to end up in this space and it's been it's become a really um, big passion for me and I was able then to end up on the board of directors for women's safety New South Wales um, and as the Indigenous spokesperson for the Indigenous members Um, and through that (laughs) I ended up doing more work in this space so
0: it's just, it just <laughs> it gets you deeper and deeper, doesn't it? It's, yeah. That's how it pulls you in. But, I mean, you're clearly passionate about this. Mm. Uh, you are a proud Dungudi woman. Is that, Dungudi. Is that right? Dungudi yes. Dungudi woman. Yes. Uh, and you grew up in Darwell country. Yes, that's right. That's the Illawarra? Wollongong region, is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. So I I grew up in the Sutherland Shire, so it's also the Sutherland Shire area, Um, but it is also the Illawarra, which is where I live now. So it's been really um, an an amazing land, an amazing place to grow up and live.
0: Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, to go back and to help the community, the Indigenous community with such an important topic, uh, you obviously never started out thinking this is where you're going to end up, but, Mm. I mean, now that you're doing it, I mean, is it something that you just, you're just you just so amped and you're so passionate and you, you're really happy to be part of?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I said, I've always had that really strong um, social justice yeah. inclination, I suppose. And just uh, working with these women and hearing their stories of survival and seeing their resilience um, and seeing that my role can just be there to support them on their own journey. You know, I'm not here to... Um, speak for anyone Um, I'm just here to provide support and provide a space so that they can empower themselves and so that they can really um, make those choices to make themselves safer and it's something that is uh, you know uh, domestic violence in Australia for women is at epidemic proportions you know we, we all know the statistics well hopefully anyone listening knows the statistics of how many women are killed as a result of domestic and family violence. Um, And it is something that there is not enough conversation around, there's not enough funding for, um, and that's just not okay in this day and age that this is still something that we're dealing with.
0: Yeah, uh, and unfortunately it seems like we've got a long way to go with properly resourcing these organisations. And there's some amazing people out there, amazing organisations, doing some wonderful things. But again, lack of funding and lack of time and and people to help um to help I guess really get in there and drive that change that they want um, so it must be somewhat frustrating on one hand
1: uh, yeah, it's incredibly frustrating. I think every time you know budgets get released every time funding is announced for different things around you know across the country. Um, I cannot help but be frustrated that there is not more directed into this space. When we talk about domestic violence, we're not just talking about a woman who, oh, it's as simple as if she just breaks up with her partner or leaves her husband, and I am talking in very gendered ways because I I work within the female space, Um, but it's not as easy as just, oh, she breaks up with that person and then it's over. We're talking about something that affects her at every single level of her life. It is her home, it is her health, it is her education, her finances, it is her children. Um, And so supporting DV survivors is actually supporting an entire family to change their entire life and the trajectory of their lives and of their children And we see intergenerational trauma and we see the effects that DV has on children who experience it growing up. Um, And if we actually directed the funding into this space now, we would actually, I think, see a savings in the future because you wouldn't have those children then growing up and Mm. unfortunately repeating the cycle or also having ongoing effects as a direct result of the trauma and the violence they experienced growing up.
0: You make some good points there. Uh, I mean, let's talk about Aboriginal, as it relates to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. They're the most at-risk group experiencing domestic violence and family violence in the country. Where do we start with that?
1: Yeah, look, I think um, the very first step is to listen to what the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander workers are saying in this space. So one of the roles that I've been really privileged to be is the Indigenous spokesperson for the Indigenous members of the WDV CASAs across New South Wales and what 92% of our workers said in a survey recently was that we need funding for ongoing case management and support for Indigenous clients who are experiencing DV. Um, this is what frontline workers have been saying for a very very long time Yeah. Um, and I think if we just really listen to the frontline workers and listen to their experience we need to stop repeating the mistakes of the past which says that people at you know, a higher, so-called higher government level, have a better idea of what is needed on the ground. It's just not true. The people know what they need. The communities know what they need. Um, It is as simple as listening to the communities and the voices of the people who are actually having that lived experience.
0: I mean, we're we're seeing a little bit more of lived experience coming through in some of these bodies, in mental health generally. Are we seeing that in domestic violence as well? Are they incorporating the voice of the community, of lived experience in driving this change?
1: Yeah, look, I think one of the things that the Women's Domestic Violence Court Advocacy Services do incredibly well across the state is that every single service, um, and I think there is 27, um, must have an Aboriginal specialist worker employed full-time. This means that every single site across the state can offer Indigenous survivors of domestic violence the ability to work with an Aboriginal woman Um, And I think that is an incredible and rare thing. There are many people who, many Indigenous women, who will try and access services um, and not have the ability to work with someone from a similar cultural background to them, not have the ability to work with someone who understands the differences and the complexities that come with living as an Aboriginal person um, in this country. And that is going to prevent people from accessing um, a service that is suitable to them and a service that really understands them. So I think there is definitely change happening in there um, and there is lots of other Aboriginal-led organisations that are doing similar work and that's really powerful and really empowering for the communities as well.
0: How long has that been happening for with the Indigenous um, workers?
1: Uh, at the Casers? Yeah. <laughs> oh, um,
0: is it something that's only recent?
1: Um, so it's been recent that they've had to be full-time. Okay. Um, so that got brought in... I believe, this year, um, but it has been for a number of years that they've had to have one, which is really great. Um, and they do also have a secondary specialist worker and they can choose whether that's a multicultural worker, a disability or youth worker, just depending on what the individual community needs.
0: What are you hearing, I mean, pre-COVID, mm. what were you hearing as some of the challenges from these uh, from the Aboriginal specialist workers coming through, other than funding?
1: <laughs> other than funding.
0: <laughs> well, funding on I know was there. You got
1: in there before I could uh, jump in with funding. Uh, funding <laughs> is always going to be the number one, but there are other complexities. I think dealing with systemic racism is probably going to be the next um, most significant barrier. I think we're talking about some systems um, that we still work with that exist today have very much still got through them, a colonial mindset um, and a very uh, paternalistic mindset that, as I was saying before, says that they know better. Than what the community knows. Um, And when we talk about systemic racism, this is something that is in all of our systems in Australia because this is a place that has been invaded and it has been colonized. So it's there from the ground up. And it's really it is hard to work around because there are just really huge barriers and really big differences um, in approaches to things. Um, Some of the speakers today did a really great um, breakdown of this as well. I just think Um, that's got to be the next biggest barrier Um, systemic racism and then also you know personal racism so you definitely still have um, people who have those biases in them and when you're talking about people working in the community services space they're often dealing with people who are at their most vulnerable who are experiencing some type of crisis Um, to have racism added to that is just adding layers and layers of challenges Mm.
0: I mean, there's seri- I mean, serious challenges, those. I mean, th- that's not something that's going to change overnight either, is it, unfortunately?
1: No, it's not. And I mean, while we can say that there's been certainly improvements over the years and, it, you know, there has been um, – things have gotten better in, in lots of ways. In other ways, we do really still see that this is, this is still something that's present in Australia and it is undeniable, you know, from my perspective um, that it still exists Um, obviously education is going to be one of the best ways to change that and to challenge that as well as funding Um, (laughs) but I think also um, just acknowledging that it exists because there are people today who will say who will listen to this and Mm. um, say well no that's not true there's there's no racism in this sector or in this organization but the reality is that there probably is
0: yeah do you think we're doing a good job at trying to bring uh, some of that cultural shift in uh, to the youth in schools and stuff with programs?
1: Um, in terms of racism in schools, and yeah, yeah. Look, definitely, I can see. So, um, in a you know, in my career, I have also worked with young people in high schools and what children um, in primary school and young people in high school now have access to in terms of resources and in terms of lessons to do with Indigenous history is worlds away from what I had access to and what certainly a generation before me had access to. So I do definitely think there is, um, there is change coming. I, I have so much optimism that the generations going through school now will come out with such a broader um, understanding and such a fuller picture of what Australia, um, what Australia's history has been and what it is today. Um, because for a very long time, this is a history that wasn't talked about. This is a history that was denied. And there's certainly still people of previous generations um, who will deny it still to this day. And I think the way that we'll overcome that is by educating the youth coming through now.
0: It's some good points. Uh, and you're right, it's, it needs to take uh, a serious... We need some serious change to happen and it's not going to happen overnight. But if we now go towards COVID, let's talk about the report the Women's Safety wrote uh, about the experience of Indigenous women experiencing violence during COVID. Tell us about that report. What were the findings? Yeah,
1: so um, quite a few findings. So what we did is we um, conducted surveys um, and feedback forums with the Indigenous specialist workers across the state and they were from metropolitan, regional and rural areas. And what we really wanted to do was get a bit of an understanding of how they themselves were um, getting feedback from clients around the impact of COVID on them but also to get an understanding of how COVID was impacting themselves as workers on the front line during the pandemic. So um, we did that and we had a really great response. So we were able to get responses from, as I said, across the state and we were able to get responses from not just city areas, but also those more remote areas. Um, The key kind of findings were that, as I said before, about 92% have said that they need um, funding for case management and ongoing support. Um, And this was really highlighted by some of the workers who talked about things like the ability to walk alongside a woman through her journey, Um, also making sure that no one is falling through the cracks and making sure that every woman has access to a culturally safe service. Um, So those were some of the the main things. Um, The other things were that COVID was absolutely increasing the amount of domestic violence incidences happening for women uh, but also increasing the complexity and the severity. So while there was definitely more incidences, the types of incidences we were getting were much harder to overcome um, and they were creating challenges for workers to be really creative and innovative in you know, new strategies. Uh, how do you protect someone who literally can't leave the house? Um, how do you get into contact with someone who is home 24-7 with the perpetrator? Um, So, there was lots of really interesting stuff on there. Um, You can read the whole report. It's on Women's Safety website um, and there's lots of really great insights uh, from the workers talking about exactly this.
0: We mentioned the key thing again, which is funding. Mm. Uh, How many reports do we need to generate (laughs) before we can get some funding?
1: Uh, That is the uh, golden question, isn't it? Um, Look, I think it is about recognising priorities. I think every single year that the funding is not given to this sector um, just shows that the priority is not where it needs to be. I think if you look at where money is spent, you'll see what people actually consider to be important um, and that is disappointing. And obviously there is through that some people who actually do incredibly great work and there are people who are really passionate um, who actually do get things through? You know, we saw COVID relief funding, which was incredible. I think that was about 100 and something million dollars um, to the sector, which was great. Um, and that recognised that COVID was creating extra challenges. Uh, but when that money goes, what what comes next? Um, so exactly right. How many reports do we need to have? <laughs> How many people need to say exactly this? You know, I'm not saying anything new here. I think this is all stuff that has been talked about for a very, very long time. Um, so I, I'd love for this to be the last time we ever have to say it. I'd love for tomorrow that the money just appears.
0: Well, the reality is, Ash, that if, if you guys aren't doing this report, nothing will happen. And and it's I don't think it's going to come if you don't do the report. So I feel like constantly doing this stuff and being able to uh, measure and assess and see how we're going and what needs to work and banging on the doors of those that can try and help with giving some funding at some point i mean you just got to pray at some point that that enough's enough and they'll they'll listen
1: yeah well i think that's it 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 is um about endlessly writing the reports Uh, but I think more than that it's also about standing up and saying that this is enough. Uh, I think there's a really good quote that I'll probably butcher which is (laughs) that no one has overcome you know their oppression by just sitting by and being polite. Mm. Um, No one has made differences um, you know for their own you know for safety and justice and activism and all of those things by playing by the rules <laughs> that were set down for us you know women yeah. weren't allowed to vote not that long ago um it's not that long ago that we weren't allowed to own a house in our own name or have a credit card um so these are really big system things that take <coughs> a lot to overcome um and those changes don't happen just by being quiet we need to be loud and we need allies to support us so every single person who hears about dv and thinks oh gosh that's bad um uh, but it's not enough to just think, "Oh, that's bad." You need to actually be vocal about that, um, because until more people are vocal, nothing will really change.
0: So true. It's a, it's uh, we need more people being active, proactive, and getting out there and, and helping beat the drum to this stuff. Tell us about what's what makes it unique. What are the unique challenges for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? Um, obviously, having Someone that's of Aboriginal and Torres Islander descent or, or heritage to actually help uh, help them through such a difficult time. Mm. But have you, is it certain patterns that are more unique to the Indigenous population?
1: Yeah. Look, I think there's lots of things that I could talk about here, but I think the main one or main ones would be around um, connection to community and culture. I think there's perhaps a fundamental misunderstanding of how important that is. A lot of um, non-Indigenous domestic violence support is framed in terms of you know, helping her leave, um, helping her go somewhere new and start fresh to escape the violence. When we're talking about an Indigenous woman with really strong cultural connections who's perhaps living on country or even if it's not her own country, on a country that she has made her home, telling her that the only way she can be safe is to sacrifice that uh, that is a choice no Aboriginal woman should have to make. Um, it shouldn't be the case that that is something that she needs to face because that is, it is intrinsic to who she is. It is it is vital to her identity and her mental health and her well-being and her safety. Um, that kind of cultural component of it, I think, is probably one of the biggest differences. Um, I think other than that, the um, colonial legacy that we still battle every day, the general mistrust and trauma associated with the community services sector we're talking about people whose perhaps parents or grandparents or even themselves were removed as children um by this sector um getting that trust back is so hard um and so important Uh, we're also talking about many communities that have high levels of unemployment um and that can be not you know because they themselves don't want to have a job but because we have racism in our in our society. I mean, there was that Beyond Blue study a couple of years ago that found that one in ten employers will not hire an Aboriginal person. That is the status of Australia today. So that kind of thing, unemployment, financial stress, those are going to be contributing factors that make things so much more complicated um, and make things so much more severe than they need to be and we see that play out in the statistics. I think it's Indigenous women are like two to five times more likely to experience domestic violence uh, and 35 times more likely to be hospitalised due to domestic and family violence. Um, so those statistics just show mm-hmm. that it's very much a real thing when we talk about differences um, between Indigenous and non-Indigenous experiences of DV. And
0: are you also finding that they're less likely to actually re- Ordered at all? Is that right? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think you see um, a, a genuine fear from Indigenous women sometimes um, for calling the police, a fear of themselves perhaps being arrested instead, um, or even a fear that their partner, or it could be, you know, just their, their son or their uncle or their father, um, then having to go to jail. And we know that, you know, black deaths in custody is very much, again, another real thing that is happening in Australia right now where Indigenous people um, are dying at abhorrent rates um, while in custody. So while, yes, a woman may want the violence to stop and she may want to call police to have, you know, someone come and intervene, you're asking her to make a choice to potentially put her her loved one in harm's way, mm. uh, that is so heartbreaking and that is so hard to overcome.
0: Mm. And is there, h- how much of this is generational, do you think?
1: Yeah, look, I think it, for Indigenous communities, um, the intergenerational trauma is very much present and we're talking about cycles of abuse. And so, you know, we have, we have people who were clients who were victims of domestic and family violence as children And are now unfortunately in that cycle still as adults and then the sad and heartbreaking thing is that their children are now being exposed to it as well so breaking that cycle is so important um you know actually creating a whole um, societal shift so that that's not what happens um and there are some really great um, Indigenous-led organisations doing more early intervention work and actually working with families in a whole family-led approach to change that and to challenge that dynamic.
0: Yeah, it's, where do you start with that? Hey, I mean, it's sort of, like you just said, it seems to keep happening in that cycle. What is it going to take to, to break it?
1: I think the key message has to be um, two things. The first one is funding the services. And I think the second thing is listening to the community. Um, We have solutions in our community. We are talking about nations that are tens of thousands of years old, that have thousands of years' worth of knowledge and experience, um, who have the solutions. And no program is ever going to work if it is not done with community consultation and involvement at every level. And I'm not just talking about having a, you know, a token launch where you invite an Indigenous person along to do the acknowledgement. I'm talking about having people there at every single stage of implementing and creating that project. If you do not have Indigenous people in your organisation, it is your responsibility to challenge that and ask why not. If you do not have Indigenous people at every level of your service, not just on the ground as frontline workers but in the boardroom, it is your responsibility to ask why not because if you're not doing it, who is?
0: Yeah, that's a good point uh, and hopefully that hopefully we, it changes and we can do something about that. Tell us more about the self-care of the workers. Let's, I mean, what was the report finding about that?
1: Yeah, so we were definitely finding that um, many workers were facing additional challenges. Um, so in Indigenous communities in Australia, um, we have a, a gap in health um, pre-COVID, So we have higher rates of um, health conditions, you know, heart disorders, diabetes, um, all all different things. So COVID really exacerbated that. And as Indigenous women ourselves, um, many of our staff also experienced those things. So COVID meant that while they were trying to provide um, safety planning and care to Indigenous survivors of domestic violence, they themselves were experiencing um, increased risk their own personal health and safety and well-being so we found that we also found that many of the women were feeling quite disconnected because a large part of our role as indigenous workers in the community is attending community events and being present um, at community cultural groups and all those kinds of things those groups were no longer running so you actually lose a lot of your support systems um, and that was really hard for a lot of the workers Uh, lots of feelings of isolation Um, also I think uh, women were talking about needing uh, more flexibility as well which we were really lucky um, in that we were able to start working from home um, and to be equipped to do so but it was all very challenging at the start I think everyone I'm sure around the world really would be able to recognise um, how it felt like overnight you had to radically change how you did your job Um, and that was so hard especially for workers who do the majority of their work face-to-face to to now having to create whole new systems and be really innovative and creative in those solutions. So how do you deliver that kind of service um, now completely over the phone or over Zoom or whatever it might be?
0: Do you feel any of those changes that have been made to do that during the pandemic will carry through to normal normal year-to-year or do you think you'll be trying to get back to the way it was as soon as you can?
1: I think there's lots of things that have come out of COVID that are actually really good, obviously not the bad parts, but the um, innovation and the adapting um, to what technology can actually do for us, I think that's really great. So I also work in the university space um, tutoring and we found the same that we now had to quickly upskill ourselves to be able to conduct lessons and provide feedback and engage with students completely online And I actually think that's really good because it means that more people can access that education. You now have students who live in remote areas who are able to have the exact same educational experience as someone who lives in the CBD. Um, And I think that's probably the same for this space. There are people who it's actually safer for them to access this kind of, you know, domestic violence support virtually than it is for them to try and come to some kind of drop-in centre. So I, I actually really hope that a lot of that side of things... Um, is carried through into the future and I think also I think it's so important that that flexibility and that um, for workers that ability to work from home and that ability to actually um, be creative with how you deliver your service I hope that that stays as well.
0: Yeah tell us about the what tools or support services have been in place for the workers during such a difficult time I mean has there been something that they can help them out. Helped them out with.
1: Yeah. So um, my my service. I work for the Illawarra Women's Domestic Violence Court Advocacy Service and Wollongong Women's Information Service um, are incredible um, for self care. They we we have such a supportive um, management team and such a supportive framework pre COVID and especially through COVID um, for allowing staff to have time off for self care. So we have one week off every um, three months, um, which is pretty unheard of in this space and wow. that helps really prevent burnout and it gives you the ability to have some time to disconnect um, and re-energise yourself because when you're talking about um, domestic violence every single day and a huge proportion of that is going to be some quiet, you know, brutal and graphic things that you're exposed to, um, you can actually become traumatised yourself. So I think giving us that space to be able to disconnect is so important um, I think, you know, any service that has those kinds of things in there is is really looking out for the well-being of their staff. And if you're not looking out for the well-being of your staff, they're not going to be providing the best service that they can to the clients because if they themselves are struggling, um, that is going to have a roll-on effect to the kind of service that they're delivering.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that, well, that's, that's really good that they've got that option. With, with leave and stuff. I mean, that's amazing.
1: Yeah, it's really good. It's it's incredibly unique. I'd never encountered that in any other um, no. job that I've had. No. And everyone I tell about it is very challenging, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as you can imagine. Sitting here thinking the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and I think the reality is there's, there's no reason why that kind of thing cannot be implemented in every kind of industry. I mean, if we look at teaching, how many teachers leave within the first five years, how many doctors leave within the first few years, how many nurses... Police. Police, yeah, police especially. The kind of trauma that they're exposed to, all emergency responders. uh, If you are dealing with trauma and quite brutal trauma every single day, that is going to have a terrible effect on your own personal well-being. Uh, We need to look after our staff. We need to look after the people doing this work. Otherwise, we're just creating more people who need to access services later on down the road because they're burnt out and they, you know, then have to cope with that in whatever way they can.
0: As we unroll hopefully from this pandemic, what, what are you seeing as some of the biggest challenges as we're coming out of this as it relates to DV?
1: Well, I think particularly for New South Wales, um, we're we're really coming off the back of a a big year. Um, You know, we started the year with pretty severe bushfires, as we all know. Um, And before that was even, you know, being dealt with or or fixed, we we hit COVID. Um, I think coming into the new year, the, the things we're going to see is the financial impact of all of those things. So we have people who have not been able to work since January. Uh, we have people who have not had, um, you know, the ability to leave their home or have a safe place to go for months and months. Um, so I think we'll probably see a huge influx of calls and a huge influx of referrals, um, and probably an increase in an even further increase in violence. I think we really need to brace ourselves for what's going to come. Um, The Christmas, you know, New Year period always sees an increase in DV uh, because you have families getting together who perhaps avoid each other all year. Uh, You have an increased financial pressure on the family um, and you have an increased intake of alcohol because you're at celebrations. So I I really think this um, coming into the end of the year and the New Year period is going to see an even further increase. Um, of all of what we've already been experiencing but just compounded by all of the things that have happened
0: yeah it's uh it's sad isn't it but it's real
1: it is it's very real
0: yeah tell me as you look to the future what are you hoping to see that's going to change
1: i think if i'm if i'm looking you know in the Utopian future of my dreams. (laughs) Um, The things that I would like to see change is more um, of an Indigenous presence in every level of our society. I think we would see a huge cultural shift in Australia if we actually just had our people present at the table, at every table. You know, as I said before, it's not about just having, you know, an Aboriginal caseworker on the ground, it's about having an Aboriginal person in the boardroom. We need to see Aboriginal people, more Aboriginal people in Parliament. We need to see more Aboriginal people as CEOs. We need to see more Aboriginal people working in health, in education, in community services um, because we we can bring something to the table that is missing without us um, and I think people need to recognise that. So that's what I would like to see changed because I think if you changed that you would probably actually see Um, A lot of things changing as a bit of a snowball effect after that.
0: What about as it relates to um, education, awareness, perpetrators, to getting out there amongst the community and trying to... I mean, do you think... What do you think is the solution for that moving forward as it relates to Indigenous populations?
1: Yeah, I think um, it is about creating community-led initiatives. It is about asking, you know, going into a community... Um, and finding out what they think will work for them. Because what will work for, you know, perhaps a remote community in the West will be completely different to what works for a community um, in a more regional East Coast area. Um, there is no one size fits all solution for this. So there is nothing that anyone can come up with in any policy paper or research project that will fit every single community. What needs to happen is that we are directing the funding into those communities, giving them the um, ability and the authority to actually enact the programs that they see as being valuable and to make change from within.
0: Take ownership.
1: Yeah, ownership. And that it's all about self-determination and sovereignty, um, recognising that that sovereignty has never been ceded. For many Indigenous people, um, they still, you know we are still seeking a recognition that we have not given up this land and so that that our community controlled organizations are a part of that it is about giving um yeah empowering us to just to take control and ownership absolutely and that that will have that flow and effect for yes the perpetrators of dv because they will be responsible to their communities
0: Yeah, and the community is actively being involved to try and say it's not okay.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you have, um, you know, if you know that you're going to be held to the standard of your community um, rather than to, you know, Australian law, you're actually facing community and cultural law, I think that would actually have a really big impact on how things have been experienced at the moment.
0: I would agree with that. Uh, Tell us... As we look to the future for you, I know you're a busy woman. You've got a lot on. (laughs) Uh, What are are your plans? What are you you hoping to achieve?
1: My plans? (laughs) First step, finish my PhD. Um, I think what I would like to do is continue working in this space. Um, I am really excited for what is happening for my service and I, I think we're actually going to be doing some really great things in the future and I'm really excited to be a part of that. Um, Thinking more long term, I think I would love to get involved in potentially in politics or in something, but I think it's really important that anyone who has that idea of, you know, maybe going into Canberra um, actually spends a significant amount of time working firstly in, you know, on the ground um and getting real life experience so you know potentially maybe one day i'll be prime minister i don't know (laughs) or maybe president because maybe we'll um (laughs) you know have evolved past the monarchy i don't know but we'll just see i I just think you know um i i'm just really passionate and i think wherever i can go and work from um that will create the most change is probably where i want to be
0: Well, Ash, you certainly have the drive. There's no doubt about that. You're very enthusiastic, very passionate about what you're doing. uh, And, I mean, we're just lucky you're out there doing what you're doing. Uh, So keep up the great work. How can people get in touch with you?
1: Ah, so I am on Twitter, um, AK underscore Johnstone. I don't know if you put slides up with this, but I'm sure you'll be able to find it somewhere. Um, So you can find me there. Um... Yeah or you can contact us at Wollongong Women's Information Service. Um you can give us a call just google us and find our number and just ask to speak to Ash. I'm happy to talk to anyone.
0: Is there an uh is there an acronym for all those <laughs> there
1: is so many. So uh WWIS. Yes. <laughs> and then IWDVCAS.
0: Yeah, I heard you say uh, yeah. them earlier. I'm like, wow, we just we got so many acronyms yeah. in middle space. I'm like Oh, that's a good one.
1: Yeah, we we have too many. It's it's actually (laughs) – I I made this joke earlier but I'll make it again because you guys weren't there. Um, I think I was legitimately in my job for like a good six months before I knew what all the different services and things that I worked for were because there's too many.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would agree with that and you just hear more and more each day anyway. So there you have it, Um, Ash. Thanks so much for coming in and having a chat to us on the podcast. Is there any final thoughts you'd like to say?
1: Uh, I know. Well, maybe yes. I was about to say no and then talk. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Um, As I said before, it is everybody's personal responsibility to make change in this space. It is not the responsibility of only Aboriginal people to find these solutions and to make change. It is the responsibility of every single person in Australia. If you feel like you're not racist, if you feel like you want equality, but you're not doing anything about it, uh, you're actually a part of the problem. You need to actively look for ways that you can create change in your organisation, in your family, in your friend group, wherever it might be. It is everyone's responsibility for us to achieve equality.
0: Well, well, I couldn't have summarised that any better. Um, Take the courage, step up, stand up and be accounted for and and stand up for what you believe in. So well said, Ash. Thanks very much for joining me. Thank you. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au. And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening, and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.